Dialogic praxis in medicine is a process of bidirectional critical analysis and learning undertaken by clinicians and patients who are encouraged to work together equitably to discover social and individual reasons for patients' mental distress. Patients then attempt to change, in small increments, the environments that cause them that distress. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Dominique Beag, an Associate Professor of Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University and a reader in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at King's College London. As part of the journal's Case Studies in Social Medicine series, Dr. Beag has co-authored a perspective article about a teenager in Brazil and his therapeutic relationship with his psychiatrist, which was grounded in dialogic praxis. Dr. Beag, how are counseling approaches based on dialogic praxis different from techniques that focus on, for example, patients' awareness of their internal psychological processes? Yes, that's a great question. I think to truly understand what dialogic practice is and how it compares to other approaches we conventionally use, I just want to provide a little bit of context. So dialogic practice comes out of, at least in part, Paulo Freire's theory of critical pedagogy. And as we all know, Freire was a Brazilian educator and philosopher whose first books were written in the 60s in the context of Brazil's dictatorship. So he wrote in exile. And his most famous book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, was banned not only in Brazil, but also in many other countries. At the end of the dictatorship in the 80s, his books became hugely inspirational for Brazil's pro-democracy education reform. He was very critical of the ways that conventional forms of education, this is something we write about in the article, had been used by state authorities to really socialize students of all ages to comply, to not question, to learn by rote memory. So the idea of critical pedagogy was quite different because it was about how to create conditions for what he called emancipatory learning and through this social change. And he wrote about how one might enable students and teachers to do this through two key things. The first was to gain awareness of how human life is conditioned, but importantly, not fully determined by social, political, cultural environments through this open-ended two-way conversation. That's the dialogic aspect. And second, to find ways to intervene and modify those environments. That's the praxis part, which emphasizes really both practice and constant reflection. Now, his works were so impactful that you could easily imagine replacing student and teacher with patient and doctor, even employee, employer, or government and citizen. So his works became hugely inspirational in a variety of sectors beyond education. A number of countries has been translated into 17 languages. And in Brazil, his ideas were very inspirational for parallel sort of intersecting movements in psychiatric reform, which was the reduction of hospitalization and the creation of community-based mental health care, which took off in the 90s. So Brazilian psychiatric reform was much like in the U.S. and the U.K. in the 60s, attuned to the various social movements that had inspired reformists like the civil rights movements. But in Brazil, obviously, there was this additional concern of how to maintain the still fragile democracy. And it was for that reason that at the time, also, many were amply debating the fact that Brazil has one of the largest income inequities in the world. And of course, this was a time when leading epidemiologists, like Dr. Cesar Victora, one of my co-authors, were publishing some of the landmark, first landmark studies on the social and economic determinants of health, and that very much interfused psychiatric reform. So with this background, it's important to consider that Freire's critical pedagogy isn't a clinical approach per se, or even a pedagogic method. It's more of a commitment to learning from critical social theory and bringing that social quite centrally into the clinic and into public health. And I think that's clearly one of the aims of this whole social medicine series. So to get to your second part of the question, how does this differ from other approaches? And in particular, 
sort of cognitive behavioral therapy or even use of medications, which have become the kind of mainstay of therapy, certainly here in the U.S. and increasingly in Brazil. So CBT tends to center on the individual, first and foremost, and specific behaviors that need to be changed. And it provides skills and methods of insight for modifying what are often called cognitive and emotional distortions that then become linked to those unwanted behaviors, like aggression or or outbursts. And it helps the individuals find ways to cope with their situation. Now, it's not that CBT in principle ignores the social environment, but in practice, it often does get underpinned by this assumption that a large portion of mental illness can be explained with reference to individual characteristics that includes things like biological predisposition. And then when CBT needs to be supplemented by something, that logic leads us to resort perhaps to medication, sometimes for a very long time. And that has become, in a way, a master narrative. Now, of course, many providers, most new providers, have a very nuanced view of mental illness and recognize the social and economic forces at play. But they'll often tell you when we interviewed them in the context of this bigger research that that's beyond their control and remit. So they restrict their work to the cognitive and behavioral realm. The problem that we found is that CBT can end up being quite reduced in focus, and in some contexts, as we show in our case, when it's used by sort of middle-class doctors with low-income youth, it can actually backfire. So in Jay's case and others that we observed, when he was sent to the school psychologist who used a behavioral approach, he ended up interpreting it as yet another sort of well-to-do person who was far removed from the reality that he was living, telling him what was wrong with him and what he should do instead, um, how he should manage his impulses. And we learned from talking to young people like Jay that these suggestions made him feel blamed and at fault, and that they ignored these larger contextual reasons that he very much saw were causing his frustration. So you bring up this case, which you described in the article, the boy in Brazil who was referred because of anxiety, learning disabilities, behavioral problems. Can you describe what the therapeutic relationship looked like in this case using dialogic praxis? And in what ways was it beneficial for the patient? And in what ways does it pose additional challenges? I think the key word there is actually relationship. So for Jay, what really mattered to him ultimately was being able to engage authoritatively with someone who he viewed as a member of this upper middle class, precisely those class of people who were teaching him, who were, he was interacting with, who he felt that tended to misunderstand his life and sometimes even look down upon him. And what Dr. M did was really listen to Jay's story, not only in order to diagnose or identify pathological symptoms, but to learn about his life experiences, recognizing his own ignorance about Jay's life, and even to allow Jay the space to be legitimately angry at Dr. M for all that he represented. And from here, I think, flowed three main qualities of the therapy that were very useful. And that also draws out this question of what's different from a behavioral approach. So the first thing is the question of how they came to understand the causes of his distress. So anger, depression, anxiety, these were discussed not as weaknesses, but as quite normal responses to difficult circumstances. That's not to say the biological wasn't important or even discussed, that biological that you're born with or how the biological can be created through things like abuse, violence, discrimination. But the main idea here was that working through the social realm carried longer therapeutic effects than just individual characteristic behavioral changes. So the second quality that flowed from that and from that dialogical praxis opening related to what they then did with these symptoms, these emotional states. And I would say that both Dr. M and Jay were really interested in this slightly more radical idea that symptoms are more than just normal responses. They're something to be interpreted, a source of meaning and agency. So this helped to start shift the focus away from a very negative view of individual behaviors and states to a more positive view that legitimized 
Jay's experiences that shifted away from a kind of what we call in the article a deficit approach, building on Jay's strengths and desires to imagine a different way of relating with his teachers and peers to his desire to participate in the student's council. So ultimately, the goal of therapy was not about reducing symptoms, first and foremost. And this led to the third quality that I would say, with the encouragement and capacity to imagine a way of relating to others, a different social world even, came the capacity to hypothesize really how you might get there and to act on those small micro hypotheses. So when Jay and Dr. Ed began to talk about his anxiety and anger in these terms, he felt more motivated to change his everyday relationships. He actually went to his teacher and said, why did you send me to the psychologist? I felt really singled out. And there were many other kids who have the same acting out behaviors that I do. And that that engaged a whole another series of useful conversations. But of course, here's the challenge part of your question. I think ultimately part of what became part of the open conversation in the therapy was that Dr. M and J really recognized that by engaging in this way in his school council with his teachers, with his peers, it would probably lead to more anxiety and more frustration. But ultimately, I think that became part of the motivational and sort of forward-looking picture. And then one last quick note, I think it's important to highlight that the school played a very important role here because in some ways, Jay came to the clinic demanding something different, expecting something or asking for something different to the psychiatrist because of the pro-democracy, Frarian ideas that he was being exposed to in the school. So this gave him a sense of possibility and hope. And in fact, Freddy and his later work turned more explicitly to this idea of a pedagogy of hope. How extensively has dialogic praxis been adopted in Brazil and in other countries for that matter? In terms of mental health care, Brazil has become much more like what we've seen in the U.S. in the past decade with a predominance of CBT and some psychiatrists might even say an overuse of medication prescriptions. But I would say Fidei's ideas continue to resonate for many psychiatrists and they're being referenced actually more and more by physicians and nurses and public health practitioners who are working specifically with regards to medical education to be able to create curricula that are more socially embedded. And we've referenced some of those Brazilian scholars in the online version of the article. But beyond Brazil, Freire's works, as well as I would say the philosophers and social theories that inspired Freire, underlie a lot of other similar initiatives that have been around for a long time. So cultural psychiatry is a long-standing, very rich field, but as well as really interesting new movements that have been gaining momentum, like the user-led movement in research and clinical practice, and the work of Diana Rose at King's College is one great example, participatory action research, cooperative learning. And I think of all of those, the Hearing Voices movement that originated out of the UK is one I highly recommend people dip into. It's a very inspirational community of researchers, psychiatrists, healthcare providers, activists, and users. And really, all of these initiatives have two core qualities that resonate with Freire's dialogic praxis, even if they're not referencing his work directly. And obviously, this equitable, less hierarchical, more tailored clinical encounter is at the core of that. And here, I think it's important for clinicians to recognize that it doesn't matter or it matters, but it only goes so far to be trained to be empathetic and understanding because there really is no clean slate in a clinical encounter. So clinicians and even public health experts need to ask themselves, what does the physician represent to the patient? There are nearly always, even in well-to-do areas, there are nearly always power differentials at play. They're genders, class-based, racialized. And as we show in our piece, seeking to undo those power structures or just simply recognizing that they exist can have immediate therapeutic effect. And it can have all sorts of other positive outcomes as well. For example, Helena Hansen's work, she's a co-author on this piece and also one of the editors of the whole series, 
found in her research in the U.S. that physicians actually have less burnout when they're empowered to address these larger social contexts that affect their patients' health. And then second, I think these larger movements really, and this gets to the question of dialogic practice as important for other areas of medicine beyond psychiatry, is the praxis part of the concept. And this relates to the iterative aspect I mentioned earlier that Dr. M and J jointly created, that is reflecting, debating, raising hypotheses, acting on those, reassessing. And in fact, that's what we call in the social sciences the inductive research process. So building knowledge from close in-depth observation, raising hypotheses that can be experimented with and researched. And that's one of the recommendations we discuss in the article is to approach users of care as co-experts, in fact. And there's a huge and growing literature on this that has different names. Citizen science is, is one of those names. Finally, for clinicians who are interested in adopting some of the methods of this approach in their own practice, what are the first steps they should take? What can they look to? That's a really good question. And I think it's important to be explicit about recommendations for clinicians because I think one understandable potential response that a clinician might have in reading the case is, where does that leave my expertise? You know, if I'm approaching uh, patients as co-experts and we're building new potential interventions with their inputs as equal actors, does that not in some way diminish the role of the therapist? And I think there are two main points to that. And first is to reiterate that dialogic practice is not really a clinical method or package that is meant to replace CBT or any other approach. And we tend to think of different clinical schools of thought as mutually exclusive. But in practice, I think many clinicians are already using multiple approaches in very hybrid ways. And I think this relates to this idea of evidence-based interventions. There's a growing interest led by physicians in complex social interventions that have been slow to develop in part because we haven't really had funding for them. It's hard to get funding for social interventions in the clinic. I've worked with several psychiatric epidemiologists who want to propose studies of new interventions that are co-designed with users who have not been able to get the funding. But I think it's just simply being open to the idea that the current evidence base is partial and just an orienting frame that leaves a lot of the most important details up to the clinician's expertise in a case-by-case basis. And the process of implementation is already a very important first recommendation. And Freddie can contribute here by highlighting the importance of adjusting one's worldview or one's theories in light of what's being discovered, again, on a case-by-case basis. So I think for clinicians, I would say commit yourselves to being scientists and researchers as well as clinicians and to using the power of in-depth case study analyses in clinical practice as a resource for always further developing, raising new hypotheses, and even challenging the current state of the art and the ideas that that underpin those. Thank you, Dr. Baug.